0: This is the weekend edition of The Code Report.
1: Hello and welcome to Connecting the Dots. My guest for today is Kiki Mistri, non-executive director at HDFC Bank and earlier vice chairman of HDFC. We're going to be talking about two things. One is internal, which is looking within the company, the board more specifically, and governance. And external, looking at the world of finance, flows, retail finance, opportunities, challenges, including structural. Mr. Mistri, thank you so much for joining us. So I'm going to talk to you about two things broadly. One is uh, looking within and the second is looking outside. The within is to do with companies, boards and governance, all areas that you're familiar with and have been involved with at a conceptual as well as a regulatory level. The outside is to do with the world of finance, the opportunities that you see, the shortcomings that you've experienced or seen, and also what we could have done but have not. And all in the context of obviously the opportunity. So let me start with within. And let me sort of get down to what we're seeing around us today. There seems to be, once again, and not for the first time, a lot of corporate governance challenges on boards. We've seen various symptoms of that. We've seen actions arising out of that. We've seen, for example, auditors resigning from companies and we're seeing a spate of that. Maybe it used to happen earlier and we didn't know about it, but it's clearly happening in a way that's pretty visible and leaves all kinds of questions hanging. You know, So should we trust the auditor because there seems to be one auditor who seems to be resigning from many boards? Is it the company that's said, well, <laughs> so your sense, I mean, you've been on at least two significant corporate governance committees, one at CII, one at uh, the Securities and Exchange Board
0: of India. So your thoughts first in an expansive way, and then I'll get down to the specifics. All right, so honestly, I think our governance issues, people resigning from boards is not something which is new. It's not only in India that it happens, it happens all over the world. There are obviously some corporate governance issues in the country. We've had so many examples of, Satyam was the most classic example, but there are many, many more that have come about over time. But you know, you have thousands of companies, and thousands of companies, of two, three, four, five companies, 10 companies have these uh, governance issues. It does not mean that we should taint the entire corporate sector as one which does not have governance. I don't think that is fair. Unfortunately, what happens is the way... The media is one, but the media are one, two, even regulators. You know, when some bad incident happens, everyone is painted in the same brush. And to solve that one issue or to rectify that one problem, regulations get introduced or requirements are put in, which then become applicable to the lakhs of companies or thousands of companies where governance standards are very good. So we need to take it in the context that, yes, there are a few examples, few cases without naming anyone where there have been governance issues in the past. But I'm sure these things happen all over the world. And if we can just weed these things out and move on. I do honestly believe that the governance standards in India are not bad. I honestly believe that the governance standards in India are above par. And just a few straight examples of bad behavior should not be taken as representative of the entire sector.
1: Okay, so I'll come to the part about what companies have done or not done. But you talked about how the regulator has responded in a way that's caused, let's say, increased compliance for
0: everyone. What's What's an example of that? I don't think it's just regulations. I think it is just everyone, including the media. Everyone starts looking at everyone with a... With is a there an example glass. that you're thinking of when you're saying this? I mean, I think you are many examples, but uh, so many cases where, I mean, to look at it from a business perspective, so many cases where the media start and a small little thing happens and then these things get blown out of shape. I don't think I'll be able to give you a specific example at this moment, but there are, I'm sure, umpteen examples. Okay.
1: So now looking from within the company, you've been on boards and your own board for many, many years, decades. What are the classic issues, you know, where there is that point where you have to take a decision or you have to take a call where let's say there is some conscience being tested.
0: See very fortunately and I must say touch wood I've never encountered that problem because I've been very cautious and very careful in selecting the boards where I would join and I've always said that governance is number one everything else comes secondary your profits can grow one quarter grow less grow more it doesn't matter but governance should not be compromised and governance means that you have to look at the long term I personally haven't faced this uh, challenge, but there have been several instances where the board has to look very deeply at some facts. Like, for example, risk management. Risk management is a very evolving subject. So many things are happening on the cyber front, for example. cyber security. Cyber security today has become a huge issue. So it's, it's a big, big issue. Uh, third is customer data. If you're a bank or if you're a financial institution or for that matter, even an e-commerce player, you have so much of data with you. How carefully are you able to guard that data? Again, this is a question that boards may have to look at because there may be cases where it may be possible to share that data from a legal standpoint, but from a governance standpoint, should you, should you not? I'm just giving you a wild example. So issues like this keep cropping up. Issues like this keep needing to get focused upon. If there is unanimity in the board, if there is a willingness on the part of the board to challenge the management, then... I don't see any major So one of the points of friction,
1: not necessarily the only point of friction, seems to be when there is a family owned and run business involved. So if you
0: ask me in India, there are three or four types of companies. You have family owned companies. It doesn't mean that because it's a family owned company, governance standards are not good. I can tell you a few companies and I will just give you one one example, Great Eastern Shipping. Governance standards are fantastic over there. I was on the board many years ago, so I know how good the governance is. So that's just one example I'm giving you. There are multiple, multiple such examples of family companies where governance has been, you know, preached, where people will not compromise on, you know, the slightest degree just to generate a little extra profit. So can you dwell on that a little more? All right, so I'll give you one, one example without naming a the company. There was this company where a free insulin happened where one of the workers was injured. And the chairman in the meeting said, I don't care what it costs, it doesn't matter. If it means our profits fall 10%, our profits fall 10%. But we must put in place processes, systems, equipment, machinery, which takes care of ensuring that these kind of things don't happen. Just one example. So when you go onto a board, the one reason they
1: want you there is to maybe bring in that sense of corporate governance and from an ethics point I of think view honestly, as well. Yeah.
0: today many companies recognize the fact that governance is critical. Because if you do not have or you are not practicing the best form of governance, the markets will not give you the right value. I meet foreign investors, I used to meet foreign investors very regularly. And even now, after leaving HDFC, I still get a lot of people, a lot of foreigners calling me. And always I know for a fact that the one thing foreigners will first look at is governance. Even if the company is extremely profitable, but if there are issues around governance, serious issues around governance, they will not invest in the company. So you will see the valuation differential between companies which are well-governed versus companies which are not well-governed. It's huge. And I think the Indian corporate sector, including family-owned companies, as you put it, even these family-owned companies recognize the fact that if they practice good governance, their valuation will get significantly less. And I'll ask you for a layperson or a student to define what well-governed means in a I second. I think yeah. governance is, I mean, just putting it very simply, yeah. governance is… Doing something which you would not be ashamed of or worried about or scared if it got reported on the next day in the newspapers, if you know what I mean.
1: So, you know, you said there are only a few examples or, or a few bad eggs. And at the same time, I mean, the point you made about foreign investors, uh, and I've seen it too, that's the first question they seem to ask. Now, if it was only a few bad eggs, then why would they be so concerned? And why would that be on top of their agenda?
0: Because again, with due respects to media, the good never gets talked about, the bad always gets talked about. So even though there may be 10 companies or a handful of companies where there have been governance issues, inevitably, most people will focus only on that. You focus on the bad, you don't focus on the good. Because the good is happening, it will continue to happen. So when you go onto a board, what are the first things that you ask for? Any board? I mean, just to make sure. So if it's an unlisted company, to make sure that it has been run like a listed company in the sense that a listed company has certain disclosure requirements. Is this unlisted company willing to make those disclosures? Listed companies have to prepare quarterly accounts. So, are those quarterly accounts getting prepared? If they are not, why are they are not getting done? You need to talk to the auditors. Forget the examples of some auditor resigning. That's a stray example. But talk to the auditors. See if they have any concern. Talk to rating agencies if the company is being rated. See if they have any concerns. Talk to proxy advisors if it's a listed company. See if they have any concerns and then take it. And then you would see how the board is being run. It doesn't mean that you need to have two-day board meetings. No, it doesn't mean that. A board meeting can be very efficiently carried out in a matter of whatever, half a day. So long as many of the issues which are contentious or which require some degree of decision-making are discussed, not necessarily in that board room, but even outside the board. So, many issues are to do with
1: results, financial results, accounting, balance sheets.
0: will have to necessarily get approved in the board because there are so many sensitivities concerning listed companies in particular as far as the financials are concerned. So that gets discussed at the board level. But if there are other strategic kind of issues, then those could be discussed, not necessarily in that half-day board meeting, but through a separate meeting or a pre-board meeting. Some companies do have this practice that before the audit meeting, for example, there is a pre-audit meeting. So the auditors run through the management of the company, the CFO, the accountant, runs through all the intricate details of the accounts for that quarter so that when the board meeting or the audit meeting actually takes place, the process becomes a lot lot simpler. Same as the case for board meetings. So let me ask you a flip question. You know, of course, it's
1: been some time that Sabi has been asking for quarterly results, several years actually. Many, years, 20 years plus. Yeah, but within that, the nature of disclosure in terms of, let's say, from a demand side as well as the regulatory pressure is increasing. Are all Indian companies ready for it? And when I say ready, I mean in a conceptual sense. And in a physical see, sense? I'm
0: sure that some of the reporting that companies are required to make, and I'm not necessarily referring to quarterly results, could be six monthly results, could be annual results, could be anything. Some of those requirements can, if you really apply your mind, look at certain processes, see if those processes can be used up. I'm sure that is something which regulators will and uh, probably would at some point of time look at. Can you give me an example again? So reporting required. We talk to a company secretary. There is so much of reporting which needs to get done. Now some of that reporting could get eased out. Some of the forms could get simplified. There are many things like that.
1: So you're talking about uh, the Securities Exchange Board of India, or are you talking about company affairs, or, or or could be anyone. Could be anyone. And when you say easing out, you're comparing it. I'm assuming with international
0: standards or. U.S. cap. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that uh, there could be certain processes which are being about certain requirements that companies are to fill up forms to be filled up uh, registers, which can be relooked at to see whether all of these are necessary. Some of these could these could be cut short. Some of these could be made applicable only to the top whatever 300, 400, 500 companies. Things like that. So amongst companies whose boards you've been on or
1: you've seen, I mean, outside of that, what are the classic mistakes that people make in not Adhering to these requirements or these
0: demands? I don't think anyone does this consciously. It could happen once in a blue moon where some filing gets delayed by a day or two days or whatever it is for some obscure reason. These things can happen. If there is a penalty, you pay the penalty and move on. It's not that these things are ever done intentionally.
1: Okay, what do people maybe not pay sufficient attention to uh, from a mindset point of view? It's, it's not right, about if the... I'm
0: sitting on the board, I'm not going to check or I'm not going to sit on making sure that the company secretary is filing every single document that is required to file. I mean that is understood. Now, if he misses filing some document or there is a delay in filing that document, then whoever is the regulator in that particular case, it could be SEBI, it could be Ministry, it could be RBI, it could be IRDA, it could be whoever. Would pull up that company, probably levy some fine. And you, for example, have dealt with six regulators. How is that then? I mean, very you know, good. I must say, the regulatory system in India is impeccable. I honestly, truly believe that the regulatory system that we follow in India, whether it is SEBI, whether it is RBI, whether it is IRDA, whether it is a pension regulator, is absolutely fantastic. I mean, today, for example, if you look at RBI. And a little bit onerous. Onerous, I suppose. I mean, if 10 things are to be looked at, maybe out of 10, are required, half may not be required. Sometimes in these things, you do tend to go a little. But the regulatory process, the regulatory system, the regulatory controls that we have in, the, in India are fabulous. in my opinion, Honestly, fabulous. It doesn't mean that one stray case may not slip through. It can slip through. But 99% of problems will get detected if there is a problem. Right. And I'm going to come to uh, the
1: external part in a moment. But the last question on auditors. Now, uh, auditors are human like everyone else. But sometimes they represent big brands and they have reputations to uphold. What should companies think of when
0: working with auditors? Because auditors can sometimes get very demanding. See, auditors have become, auditors are now these days getting pulled up for small, small things which happen in a company. It's not necessary that every single problem that is there in a company will get detected. At the end of the day, an auditor out of million transactions is auditing a sample. It could be ten thousand, could be twenty, whatever it is. So in the sample which is not selected, if some issue does come up, it can come. Up. Auditors have become more conscious now or more worried now compared to what they were in the past because the regulators have started taking action against them. We saw what happened in Satyam, we saw what happened in ILFS. So there have been instances where the auditors have been put to task or pulled up for a variety of reasons and therefore they're becoming that much more cautious or that much more careful in what they say.
1: So let's say you have a disagreement with your auditor and maybe looks like it's going to spin out of control. What should you do? Should you, for example, fight with the auditor publicly?
0: No, no, I don't think that's the right way to do it. I'm sure there is a way of convincing the auditor to your point of view or at the end of the day, you accept what they are saying and put a qualifying note saying that we do not agree with this. view. In our view, this is the way it should get done. But finally, the accounts have to get signed. So to get the account signed, you have first you make every possible conceivable effort to convince the auditor. 99 out of 100 terms, you will be able to do it if you're right theoretically if you are not able to convince them then my advice to the companies adopt what the, what the auditor is saying rather than getting a qualification in the accounts and you can put your point of view in public domain saying that why well, this has been done because your auditors wanted it you personally think this should not be done because of this, 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 this reason Right,
1: okay so let me come to the external part now so the world of finance I'm not specifically talking about mortgages or banks but in general where are we in the it's
0: very independent I think the financial services sector in India has phenomenal opportunity to grow. You see, the biggest advantage we have in India is that we have a young population. Two-thirds of our population is below 35 years of age. And as people grow older and older, their incomes start increasing, obviously. As their incomes earn, their ambitions increase in life, they want to spend more money, they want to buy more things. So financial service products is the first thing that comes to mind when anyone's moving up the ladder it can be property it could be a credit card it could be a consumer loan it could be a car loan it could be traveling abroad when taking a loan to travel abroad all kinds of things
1: so when you say underpenetrated, can you define that why why is it all so, right, so i'll give an
0: example of mortgages the way you look at penetration in mortgages and this is the case with any financial service product you look at the total outstanding loans of that particular category of loans and divide that by the GDP. So you take mortgages, for example, the total outstanding housing loans in the country, which would include banks, housing finance companies, whatever, NBFCs, whatever housing loans they have, divided by the GDP of the country, of India today is about 11%. Now you compare that 11% with China, which may be over 20%. You compare it with the US or the UK, which may be over 50%, which means that our penetration in India is still very low. You know, 30 years ago or 35 years ago, we were at 1%. We have moved up from 1% to 11%. So, there's a lot that we've achieved over time. But that 11 can very easily, over the next 10, 15 years, get to 15, 20, 25. And 11 to 20 in rupee terms is a huge, huge sum of money. And that's similar data you can get for credit cards, similar data you can get for car loans, similar data you can get for personal loans, any kind of financial service
1: and is that growth linked to, let's say, per capita GDP income? Because banking, at least the first layer, we have very high penetration. I mean, including...
0: Clearly, no, but clearly the per capita income in India is increasing and has been increasing year on year. And for that, you have to give credit to the government for what they've done. They've really eased the process, made sure that the underserved are given facilities, given uh, ability to raise funds, to do some business, to earn some income.
1: What would you say are the structural challenges of growing the financial system and and within that, let's say, mortgages or loans I don't think there is any
0: real structural challenge as such. I honestly think that uh, the growth is there and the growth will happen as the economy keeps growing. And I truly believe that the economic growth in India can be extremely strong. I said this a year ago and I said this two years ago also, that I believe that after the pandemic, India will grow faster than almost any country in, in the world. I've been seeing that happening. China's slowing down. China's having its own challenges. We are growing. We are growing faster and faster. We have good leaders. We have good economic policies. We are very good regulators. We have a growing population. We have a population where people are aspiring for bigger and better things in life. So the scope to grow is just phenomenal. But you know, when you're looking at growth, you should never look at one quarter or two quarters. These ten, numbers tend to be misleading you look at it from a five-year point of view or look at it from a 10-year point of view, then you can very easily ascribe a certain uh, CAGR growth in the years, which would be faster than you would see in most other countries.
1: So let me define my question a little more. So when I say what could be a structural challenge, it could be, for example, let's say, ratings of individuals or better understanding of individual capability to repay loans.
0: Look, I, I think if you look at this 20 years ago or 25 years ago, we had no credit bureau. If that's an
1: issue, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying that could be one structural challenge.
0: So, Sybil was the first credit bureau which started in India and actually HDFC State Bank were the pioneers and we we put in equity. And then over time, we came down and today we don't hold equity. So, today, Crystal has so much of data available with them. So, I don't think knowledge about company of of, of an individual's credit score of an individual's rating is that much of an issue
1: so what would you say then? I mean, am, am we're talking from a growth point of view. It's not like it's not happening. But if we were to grow faster and move from under-penetrated to, let's say, somewhat penet- better-penetrated. But it,
0: it is happening. Every year, the growth is faster and faster. Mortgages grew at 15% for the system as a whole. 15% growth in a base as big as this is, is not a small growth at all. Again, coming to mortgages specifically because that's that was our business. People in India don't buy a house when they are 20 or 25 years old. The average age of a first-time home buyer in India is about 38 or 39 years. And I told you earlier that two-thirds of India's population is below 35 years. So, in reality, two-thirds of our population is not even thought of buying a house. But with every passing year, you're going to have more and more of these people who will reach an age where they will need to buy a house. So, I think there will be a structural increase in the demand for housing. And why only housing? Every kind of financial service product as we keep growing, as people start growing. Because of a young population. And you feel this is a supply side or a demand side problem? That, you know, people who, you know, young people. I don't think there's a supply side issue. I think there is enough availability of liquidity in the system. There is willingness to take risks. I don't think risk averseness is that high in India. I think it's a demand issue. And demand issue is because people are not needing that today. If I'm 25 years old, I'm staying with my parents, why would I want to buy a house?
1: Are you seeing, uh, I mean, in the last, let's say, again, a couple of decades, and since you mentioned COVID as a turning, what are the changes that you've seen in the way people take loans or that the point at which they take loans?
0: I think the willingness to borrow money today is much better or much greater than was the case, say, 40 years ago. When I started working in HDFC first time in 1981, at that time, there was a certain feeling of shame when you went to borrow money. Borrowing money was considered, not a sin, sin is a wrong word, but not considered a nice thing to do from an individual standpoint. That has changed over time. No one is worried about taking a loan. No one feels afraid of taking a loan or no one feels that there is anything wrong in taking a loan. So willingness to borrow money is now like any other country. But Indians by nature, particularly compared to the Western countries, are much more conservative in there. So people will not go and borrow to the hilt and start over-leveraging themselves and run the risk of, losing a house, so people are that way much more cautious in India than they would be in the Western world. And that's why you would see the defaults in India, relatively speaking, on personal loans, individual loans, housing loans, car loans, is a lot lesser than what you would see in some of the other countries. What is it for housing loans, currently, you think? Housing loans, I mean, for the system, nobody knows, but at the HDFC level for individual housing loans, our gross non-performing loans was under 1%. And historically, from the time we started giving loans to individuals, I'm only talking yeah. individuals, I'm not talking of construction loans, but individual loans, from the time we started giving loans till the date of the merger, the total loans we wrote off, we couldn't recover, was 0.04% of what we dispersed, cumulatively. Not in one year, not in five years, cumulatively. And you say four you wrote years. off, but,
1: but uh, this was despite, let's say, seizing the property and. Uh, I mean, if,
0: if you have a husband, wife who've taken a loan, both die in an accident, a small child is left behind, what do you do? I mean, these kind of instances will be there. And this is something that's happened? Of course, these things happen. In day-to-day life, these things do happen once. So, and you're saying that's that… That's what they, I hope it never happens to yeah, anyone. But, 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 but you're saying in these happen.
1: cases, you've let the… You would,
0: you would. You, let it go. Yeah. I mean, you can't have zero uh, loan yeah. losses in any any lending institution. No, but any yeah, you're saying that you've taken a compassionate approach in a case… You, to, you Sometimes you take a compassionate approach. It depends on a case-to-case basis. I don't think you can generalize.
1: Okay, but but this is something that you've done as HDFC in the past. So let me come to something very current. Where are we in the liquidity sense? I mean, the Reserve Bank has sucked out a lot of liquidity. There's obviously a feeling that there's going to be an asset bubble as
0: reflected by that action. How are you seeing things in the next three to six months? Liquidity, I mean, first of all, liquidity was really put into the system in a big way during the COVID time. And I really honestly believe that we handled the COVID situation better than almost any country in the world. Whether it was a government which did not go overboard in terms of giving out grants and always kept the fiscal position in mind. Or it was RBI which did not just keep printing money and flushing the system with liquidity. But they did targeted lending to make sure that no sector in the economy or no company in the system gets affected or is hurt in a significant manner. So, all Kudos, fabulous job done by government and RBI. At that time, the quantum of liquidity in the system had to be increased. Slowly over time, that liquidity is getting sucked out. I don't think liquidity in today's context is a serious problem or is a big worry. It's just that the excess liquidity was still, Some of that liquidity has been back. And
1: how is if you cast your eyes now uh, across the Atlantic, for example, we're seeing yields go up in the United States, which has caused all kinds of other problems. How are you seeing things in terms of flows globally
0: and uh, into or out of India? I think globally, flows are still coming into India, both in the equity market and to to a great extent also in the debt market. Flows are coming into India because India is a very attractive destination for foreigners. Today, when you talk to foreigners and you ask them, which is the country you would like to invest in the most? And if they were to give you an impartial answer, nine out of ten people will tell you India. Because India is a very attractive destination for foreign investment because the growth that we are seeing in India today is unparalleled and that growth can continue for a long, long, long time to come. And no other country in the world has the potential to grow that. fast. So foreign money will keep coming in. People will start worrying about valuation, Someone will say value is high, this is too high, P ratios are too high, too stretched. That is is a matter of judgment. But fundamentally, money will keep coming in. You've seen NRI flows. You've seen the amount of NRI flows which have come back to India last year, in 2023 so far. Non-resident Indians sending money back into India. So,
1: I've consciously stayed away from asking you HTFC questions. But let me ask you one uh, question to end, which is, what's your unfinished agenda in some ways? What would you have liked to have done or finished in HDFC? And I'm talking really mortgages now. Either
0: conceptually, structurally, products. See, I'll tell you on the long-term merger was something which made tremendous sense. Because the mortgage product, the way it was before the merger, was to some extent complicated. The bank used to source loans for us. They would bring the application form to us. HDFC Limited would do the credit appraisal, legal checks, technical checks disbursed a loan. Then the bank would have a right to buy back up to a certain percentage of those loans and we would retain some part on the portion the bank would buy back. There would some would be some fees that we would continue getting. So it was not the smoothest and the most simplest way to do a loan and therefore a merger in the long term that make tremendous sense. It's just that five years ago or seven years ago the regulatory framework of a merger would have resulted in a situation where the combined profits of HDFC, HDFC Bank would have got impacted because of the huge amount of CRR SLR, priority sector lending requirement that, that was there. But gradually over time, particularly in the last three three or four years, regulations have broadly become similar. Therefore, what you're saying is that you would have liked to have seen it happen earlier, but… It couldn't happen because we examined this in 2014 also. And we found that it didn't make sense. This time when we examined it, it did make sense. For many, many reasons. One is the SLR, CRR requirement over 10 years has come down a lot. Secondly, we now, we as an HDFC limited, carry the liquidity which is required in a banking format. LCR has been imposed, had been, uh, you know, we were required to comply with LCR requirement. So the additional regulatory cost of a merger was to that extent significantly lower than what it would have been by what it is. So I don't think there's any unfinished agenda. I mean, you can always say One particular loan, this could have been done better, that could have been done better. That's the definition.
1: But anything that from a personal passion project point of view?
0: No, I think we did whatever we we wanted to get into all financial service products, which we did. We started a life insurance company, general insurance, asset management. All these three businesses, you will see that we are in number one, number two, number three. Similarly, you take uh, education finance. We started an education finance business, Credilla. We have a real estate fund. So, every possible, considerable financial service product that was possible, we have it within the HDFC brand. Whether it is through HDFC Bank, HDFC earlier, HDFC Limited or Life or Asset Management or General Insurance or Credit Law. So, in that sense, there was no unfulfilled agenda left. Thari. Right, and and uh, you've you've joined, for example, the Cyrus
1: Wala group as an advisor. So, uh, and this is really my last question. So, what's the one, let's say, maybe exotic financial product or something new that you want to work on in your new avatar? I mean,
0: one has to really go and spend time with to understand what is missing in their scheme of things, and then take a call. It's too too premature. I've just been to Puna once in recent times, so too too
1: premature. Okay, so I hope to come back to you and ask you some more questions in than that. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.